priority is treasuring church. And to advance this priority, to value our church more, we're sprinkling in sermons on the images of the church found in the Bible. Carson preached the first three of these, the church as family, the church as the temple, and the church as the bride. Well, when the staff found that I was preaching on the fourth image of the church, the church as the body, and because my name is Jake and I like to lift weights, they immediately said, you need a name and title your sermon, Body by Jake. <laughs> Seriously? Whoever said there are no bad ideas in brainstorming has never been to a North Wake staff meeting. <laughs> no one needs that image in their mind uh, on a topic such as this. So hopefully they met this Jake. That is where the phrase body by Jake came from. I'm sure that's the 80s. So just so you know, we will not be using this as our sermon title today. We'll simply keep it uh, church image, the body of Christ. And with all of this, I think we desperately need to pray. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here together this morning as the body of Christ. And so Lord, as we look at your word through your apostle Paul, may we see the beauty of the metaphor of your church as the body of Christ. And as we see the beauty of that, Lord, would you transform us? We pray in Christ's name, amen. How many of you grew up playing with these? Yes, most of us did when we were children and some of us still do today. And because these toys are so popular, Lego has experienced significant success. Last year alone, Lego experienced gross sales of $8.5 billion. They have 731 stores in 50 countries. They are 92nd on Forbes' list of the world's most valuable brands, making them the number one toy brand today. They have spawned action figures and TV shows and fan conferences and even four movies that gross almost $1.1 million worldwide. Some fun Lego facts courtesy of National Geographic are that during the Christmas season, almost 28 Lego sets are sold each second. Laid end to end, the number of Lego bricks sold in a year would reach more than five times around the world. And on average, there are 80 Lego bricks for every person on earth. So what makes these tiny little bricks so special? Well, you see, it's all about their interlocking design of the bricks. Lego makes this clear on their website where they state, the tubes on the bottom interlock with the studs on top of the other bricks. The studs get neatly wedged in between the tubes and the sides of every brick, making them stick together firmly. They say the clutch power of Lego bricks has made it possible to create bigger and bigger sets without them falling apart. Lego bricks are in essence a whole construction system with endless possibilities. And then they say the only limitation is your imagination. So according to Lego, it's all about the clutch power and the ability to stick together firmly, which prevents them from falling apart, which makes Legos so special. And with that clutch power, you were able to take these tiny little individual bricks connect them together, and build something much grander than they could ever be apart. 
Look at just a few of the constructions built by others that will highlight this point. This is a Lego Titanic built by a 10-year-old autistic boy in Iceland. This is the world's tallest Lego tower at 114 feet built in front of St. Stephen's Basilica in Budapest. And this is a Lego person built by artist Nathan Sawaya. You see, these individual tiny little bricks are not that impressive on their own. And to be honest, they are painful when they're set apart because they fall on the floor and you you step on them, right? (laughs) But when you add one brick to another brick to another brick and eventually connect them all all together, they become something beautifully impressive. Well, today we are going to see that God designed the church to be connected together in ways that are even stronger and more impressive than Lego bricks. Our Lego metaphor will pale in comparison to the metaphor the Apostle Paul uses to describe the church and its clutch power that helps it stick together firmly in all circumstances so that it does not fall apart. Listen to Paul's metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. See, Paul's metaphor is that of a body, and this image of the church as the body of Christ is only used by one of the New Testament authors, the Apostle Paul. Now, scholars are not quite sure why he used it, and none of the other authors did, but I found pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson's insights helpful here when he said that he suspects that at least part of the reason for this is the way in which the Apostle Paul reflected on his first meeting with Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road and how Jesus' strange words had fixed themselves in Paul's memory. Why are you persecuting me? Saul had thought that he was persecuting the followers of the way, this riffraff that he had despised. But then he discovered that he was persecuting those who so belonged to Jesus Christ that they were, as it were, the body of Jesus Christ. And Paul, who was brought to faith in Christ and slowly discovered that by being brought near to Jesus and united with him by faith, he was simultaneously brought near to brothers and sisters and united to them in faith. And that this fellowship was not simply a new organization, but a living body, an organism. He goes on to say that the church, we are a living, breathing, growing body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with this in mind, we realize that the relationship between the church as the body of Christ is so closely related to the person of Christ that the Apostle Paul can simply use Christ to communicate the body of Christ in verse 12. And with this, express the utter unity of the church. So the first point we need to see from our passage this morning is that because the church is a body, the church is unified. The church is unified. 
As we said earlier, the Apostle Paul uses a metaphor or image for the church that is stronger and even more impressive than Legos, that of a human body. And it does not take a physician to understand Paul's metaphor. The beauty of the metaphor is that each and every one of us have a body. And because we all have bodies, we immediately get the unity required from each member or body part for our bodies to function properly. Each and every aspect of our anatomy has to do its part for us to be healthy and able to function properly. And Paul will unpack this further as he continues his illustration. But he gives us a sneak peek of the comparison that he will be drawing that the church is like a human body and even more significant, the body of Christ. And in verse 13, he describes the Holy Spirit's role in this unifying work. The idea of being baptized and made to drink of the one spirit is another way of describing, describing our common experience of salvation, at which time we receive the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul would write to another church, the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So it is the Holy Spirit who begins to unify us, the many becoming one at the moment of our salvation. And making many's into ones is not something new for God. God is so unified in himself and is such a unifying agent that a great mystery occurs when God is involved. You see, plurals become singulars. In him, the many's become ones. Let me give you just a few examples of this. We see this great mystery in the Trinity. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your might. Three are one, Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct persons, yet one God. We also see this in marriage. In the garden, when God performs the first uh, marriage ceremony, he takes Adam and Eve, two individuals, and miraculously makes them one. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Two, become one. And then today, the church, multiple members. In the case of North Wake, 419 mem individual members becoming one body. So how is it that the individual people become one body, one church body? In and by the Spirit. One commentator answered the question this way, by their common, lavish experience of the Spirit. This is the common experience for every person who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But I do realize that this may not be the common experience of everyone here today. And if there has never been a time when you have confessed to God that you have sinned against him and that you desire Jesus to be your substitutionary work on the cross, to become yours through faith, to rescue you by his great sacrifice at the end of our service as we partake in the Lord's Supper, I urge you to use that time to do just that. 
During that time, pray to our great and merciful God. Repent and believe in Jesus as your only hope for salvation and receive the promised Holy Spirit and then be united to brothers and sisters in Christ, in God's family, the church, the body of Christ. As we pick back up to further express how unifying the work of God is, Paul addresses the two most severing distinctions in the culture of his day, race and social status. Paul is declaring that these distinctions, these dividing lines, these differences are demolished in and by the Holy Spirit from the moment of salvation forward. One commentator put it this way, racial prejudice and social stereotypes are supposed to be submerged and put to death in baptism. Then he says this, but all too frequently these evils survive the experience, dry themselves off, and form cankers on the body. So North Wake Church, has the work of the Holy Spirit in your life destroyed any and all division in your minds and hearts regarding race and social status? Are you able to love all of God's people the same, black and white and every shade in between, rich and poor and everyone in the middle? Where might the Holy Spirit be pressing upon you this day to be more unified with every member of this congregation by his power as a result of your salvation. Now the second point that I want us to see from our passage is that because the church is a body, the church is diverse. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. Paul makes it clear that unity does not mean uniformity. The unity of the church is actually enhanced by the diversity of the church. One preacher I listened to this week made this comment that I thought was illuminating. He said, the church, uh, that we are like a stained glass window through which the light of Jesus Christ shines and the whole picture is all the more beautiful because it is multicolored. Paul continues to make this point with his metaphor in verses 15 and 16. The body is personified and given uh, voices which speak absurdity. A voice exclaims that he is walking out on the rest of the body. An ear proclaims that she will no longer listen to what the body is telling her. And this seems to be driven by a feeling of inferiority and envy. And with two parallel rhetorical questions, Paul highlights the absurdity of this way of thinking. Can you imagine a body of all eyes or one of all ears? Either one of these would be one of the most grotesque, horrifying monstrosities that would even stretch the mind of people like Steven Spielberg. And not only that, but the body would not be able to function at all. Let me illustrate this with a, with a sports metaphor. Uh, many of you have heard of the name Patrick Mahomes. 
He's the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs and is arguably the best football player in the NFL. He's the highest paid quarterback in the NFL history at a half a billion dollars. You heard that right, a half a billion dollars is what they pay him. Now, even though Patrick Mahomes is the best player in the entire league, imagine a football team of all Patrick Mahomes. At every position, offense, defense, special teams, a team of nothing but quarterbacks. How well do you think that team would perform? What do you think will be their record at the end of the season? They would lose every game. They would be absolutely terrible. So see, all of one thing, even a great thing, can be a bad thing. Just like Patrick Mahomes needs a variety and diverse group of players, linemen and running backs and receivers and linebackers and defensive backs and even kickers, the church needs players at every position. We need the diversity of every member's gifts. So the church was not designed by God to be uniform. You see, our diversity makes the body of North Wake more beautiful. And our diversity makes our team better. Our diversity enhances our unity. So each and every one of you are unique. You're a snowflake, right, from elementary school? But you really are. You're unique. The question is not, do you have gifts? But are you stewarding from the church because each of you have unique gifts and talents and experiences and trainings and education? So are you using those to strengthen the body of Christ? Are you using your gifts on Sunday morning in our serve ministries? By your meaningful, active participation in the life and ministry of the church, is North Wake healthier? I personally know that many of you are. And I want to thank you for enhancing the health and unity of our church by your active involvement. But for those of you who may not be, those of you who may not think that you have anything to offer because your gifts are not as important as others, God wants you to know that we need you. God gave us you and your diverse gifts for the good of the church so that she becomes even healthier and more beautiful. So to recap, because the church is the body, the church is unified, the church is diverse, and now we're going to see that the church is interdependent. Interdependent. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So now we're going to take a look at the flip side of the coin. Instead of inferiority and envy, we see perceived superiority and self-sufficiency. Do you hear the arrogance in the statement, I have no need of you? Does this sound like something you might hear in our society? You see, our culture tends to praise and even promote self-sufficiency and independence. But God reminds us that we are to be one another sufficient and interdependent. Pride and self-sufficiency and independence is not the way of Christ's church. It's the way of the world. The way of Christ's church 
is humility. And in James chapter 4, verse 6, we're reminded that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So every member's participation is needed because the church is designed to be interdependent. Just like every part of the human body is interdependent. Paul even goes so far as to say that even our perceived weaker and less honorable and unpresentable parts are necessary. Even our most private parts are utterly essential. Parts that usually remain covered or hidden are absolutely needed. And since I love using sports metaphors, we might even say that the water boy is indispensable. And I bet when I said that, I heard some chuckles, that some of you thought of an Adam Sandler movie. So I will quote Bobby Boucher, who said, every team needs clean, cold, high-quality H2O. (laughs) Was that a pretty good impersonation? Yeah, you might not think that your gifts... How do you recover from that? Maybe I shouldn't use that. (laughs) You may not think that your gifts are as oppressive or as necessary in the church, but I can say with great confidence that they are. I cannot tell you how many people serve this church behind the scenes with great modesty. Just to pull off what we are enjoying this morning, it takes about 200 volunteers. Many of you will never see them or notice them. Folks who prepared the coffee before you even came in and all the condiments that go with them. The folks that set up the communion table. Those who manage our facilities so that we even had a building to walk into with chairs and climate control that when you leave, who will clean up your coffee spills and your trash that we leave behind. Fee team members who distribute food to those in need in our community, as we just heard this morning. Audio and visual techs who are helping us hear and see everything with great clarity. And children's ministry volunteers who are serving the over 200 kids that will be in ministry this morning so that we can participate in various ministries across the campus. Youth leaders and life change hosts and teachers, security team members. I could go on and on and on. And then there are those who serve above and beyond our Sunday morning services, who also serve as hope counselors and women's and men's ministry team members, trustees and small group leaders, deacons and deaconesses, lily mom leaders, runners camp volunteers, teams like the Vine Project and Harvest Team. And just to pull off our Wednesday night family tables that a lot of you are enjoying and are really a big success, I calculated that each week it takes 44 volunteers to just offer that to our church. And even after mentioning all of these, I am confident that I am just scratching the surface. Time would not even allow me uh, enough to list them all. The point is, is that there is no one in this church who can say, I have no need of you. Because God designed the church like a body to be interdependent upon each and every member. And did you notice that we're expected to give special honor to those who serve behind the scenes? Those who gifts who may not seem as prominent? So North Wake, will you give special honor to the folks who are a part of our North Wake body? Those who serve behind the scenes. Will you grab someone today or this week to give them honor with your words and your actions? 
Will you write them an encouraging note with a gift card inside? Will you invite someone to dinner in your home or take them out to a restaurant? Church, will you give honor where honor is due? And that leads us to our fourth point. Because the church is a body, the church is mutually caring. Mutually caring. Look at the second half of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here, Paul declares the purpose and intent that God has in composing his church as a body. The goal is mutual care. He wants us to care deeply for one another. We see this mutual care in Paul as he writes to the church in Ephesians. and He describes it as nourishing and cherishing. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then look at verse 29. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul says that this care is loving towards others and ultimately is a way that we are loved in return. So this is a loving mutual care. The care that we are to give each and every church member is nothing less than love. And to be honest, I almost missed this when I was preparing to preach on the church as the body of Christ this morning. I was so focused in on verses 12 through 27 that I almost missed it. But in all three places in the New Testament where Paul describes the church as the body of Christ, he ends it with love. If we just read a little further in our chapter this morning in the last verse, Paul writes this. He says, I will show you a more excellent way. So he leaves us with a cliffhanger. We're left asking, Paul, what is this still more excellent way? Well, he tells us in chapter 13, which is known as the love chapter, the most excellent way that Paul is directing the church towards the purpose of the church's unity and diversity and interdependence is that we love one another. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. We find the same thing in Romans and Ephesians, the two other places where Paul uses the image of the body of Christ for the church. He says this in Romans 12, towards the end, in verses 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, what does it do? It makes the body grow. Why? So that it builds itself up in love. So in all three places where Paul depicts the church as the body of Christ, it culminates in love. And since God is love, this makes complete sense. And we all know that this love is not something that we can muster up in our own strength. 
No, we know that this type of love comes only from God. We see this in 1 John chapter 4 in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So you're able to love others simply because God first loved you. And if you can't love others this way, it's an indicator that you may not have received God's love yourself. Jesus would say it this way in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Addressing our mutual care and love for one another, one commentator wrote this. One individual's joy or suffering should prove contagious. He goes on to say, it is difficult for people to weep or rejoice with those whom they do not feel close those whom they don't have a relationship with, those whom they don't love. Think about it. How do you feel when someone you don't know at all suffers? As Christians, we do feel bad for them. But will we say we suffer with them? The same thing about accomplishments. You're probably glad for them, but do you truly rejoice with them? Think about it. When's the last time you just went to a random high school graduation to celebrate a graduate that you don't even know? Or do you go to the birthing center at one of our local hospitals with flowers and balloons and cigars, if if you're not a seminary student, to celebrate with parents that you've never met? No. You see, true grief and true joy are reserved for family and friends, those whom you have a relationship with, those whom you love. So true, authentic, Christ-like love is required for our ability to suffer with and rejoice with other Christians, those in the church, those in this room. So when is the last time you wept with someone in this room? Have you visited someone in the hospital lately? You know we can do that again. Have you called to check in on someone? Have you prayed with a family who is grieving? On the other side, when is the last time you rejoiced with another church member over one of their victories? Are the high fives and the attaboys flying freely? Have you taken someone to dinner to celebrate one of their recent accomplishments? You see, the goal, the purpose, the design of the church as the body of Christ is that we would have loving, mutual care for one another. Now, there's one more point that I want to note, and it's been sprinkled throughout our passage, and you probably picked up on it. But because the church is a body, the church is God's design. He is the architect. Look at verse 18 again. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. Verse 24 But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. And then in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. The church is not man's invention. It's God's almighty's. He is the master architect. We are not just a body, but the body of Christ. 
We did not arrange this. God arranged every member here as he chose. We are not the orchestrator. God is the great composer. So what does all of this mean for us? You see, if we try to force oneness through self-effort, our structures, our man-made religion, forcing the many members together on our own, all we do is build Frankenstein's monster. Like Victor Frankenstein, we meddle with God's plan by attempting to give life to a body by piecing together various parts from different people, which becomes nothing less than an abomination. But if, if we allow the Spirit of God to do His work in and through us, we become something beautiful. The body of Christ. When we yield our individual lives to God, God as creator and designer of the church brings this group of diverse people together and unifies us as we depend upon one another and lovingly care for each other. Now just this week, we celebrated our nation's birth on the 4th of July. Most of you enjoy burgers and hot dogs and probably watch fireworks or at least your neighbors kept you up with fireworks. And all of these things are a part of us celebrating our creation of our new nation. And if you remember your history, the motto was given to this newly established United States was E Pluribus Unum. E Pluribus Unum. You'll notice it on the banner of the great seal of the United States on the screen behind me. Do you guys remember what that Latin phrase means? Out of many, one. Out of many, one. And this Latin phrase adopted by our founding fathers reflected a determination to assemble a single unified nation from a collection of states. And it's come to suggest that out of many peoples and races and ancestries has emerged a single people, a nation. But to us, to believers who have placed ourselves under the authority of the Bible and now the image of the church as the body of Christ, e pluribus unum means something more to us. It means something about the church. It means that by the grace of the very Spirit of God who chooses to man himself through each one, through that great diversity, the church is made one by the same Spirit having God as its designer, e pluribus unum, out of the many, one, one spirit-led church, the body of Christ. I want to show you one more Lego creation. It's simply titled Love. And I think this image beautifully depicts the church as a body of love, the body of Christ who is the epitome of love with all the diverse, multicolored, individual pieces connected together in unity, interdependent, focused on loving mutual care, and composed and held together by God himself. So North Wake Church, will you allow God to take your brick, connect it with all the other diverse bricks, becoming interdependent, providing loving mutual care, knowing that this is God's original design for his church, the body of Christ. With the body of Christ at the forefront of our minds, it makes sense that we would partake 
of the Lord's Supper together this morning. Now we have experienced many hardships as a result uh, of COVID, and, but there have been some positive things that we have experienced through it all. We were talking about this at one of our last Wednesday night uh, family tables, uh, that one of the positives that have, has come out of that is how we observe the Lord's Supper together now. You see, before we mostly approached the table in our own time with our own biological family, uh, those individuals, families would pray together and then take communion together. I enjoyed taking communion with my wife and my kids. There are a lot of benefits with that. But I was missing taking it with my church family all together. In the chapter before the one we just studied this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this phrase five times concerning taking communion. When you come together. When you come together. He's writing to a local church and therefore he is assuming that the local church is observing the Lord's Supper together as one body. So this morning as the body of Christ, the church, we want to remember the sacrifice of Christ's body together. Unified, diverse, interdependent, with mutual care and concern, knowing that this is Christ's body. And as we come to the table, we'll, we'll use the center aisles and the wall aisles to approach, and then we'll use these two aisles to return. And if you would, so that we can observe the Lord's Supper together, uh, be seated, wait for everyone to get the elements, and be seated as well, and I'll lead us in the taking of communion together as one body.